ಶ್ರೀಹರಿಂ ಪರಮಂದ ಉಪದೇಷ್ಟಾರೀಶ್ವರ ವ್ಯಾಪಕ ಕಾರಣ ತಮ್ಯಹಂ before we start i would like to mention that it's a slightly embarrassing for me because we have with us today uh, rivet swami atmapriyanand ji maharaj all the way from india he arrived yesterday and uh, it's embarrassing for this purpose for this reason that i learned vedanta from him so to find him in the audience is both uh, both a blessing and also a little unsettling <laughs> so we were studying aparoksha anubhuti an introductory text written by adi shankaracharya some 1400 years ago and we we were on verse number 32 we have done verse number 32 what was going on shankaracharya was showing us how to distinguish between the self and the not self why is this an issue because advaita vedanta assures us that our real nature if only we would know ourselves our real nature is infinite existence consciousness bliss and that is so right now you don't have to become that you don't have to attain that if that is so right now that's very far from what we think about ourselves we think about ourselves as this person this body this mind with its own history that's what we know about ourselves and therefore if vedanta is to be true then what we know about ourselves and what we claim ourselves to be that must be in some sense wrong that must be in some sense wrong we do not know who we really are and what we think we are we are convinced we are this person that's not who we are or at least that's not the whole truth not by uh, um you know uh, there was a saying by mark twain it seems he said that it's not what you do not know that gets you into trouble it's what you know that it just ain't so that gets you into trouble <laughs> so that we do not know vedanta that itself is not such a big problem but what is our problem is that we claim we know who we are that this body and mind this is what shankaracharya calls adhyasa superimposition it's a technical term it just means taking something to be what it is not taking something to be what it is not we do not take ourselves to be what we truly are according to vedanta and we take ourselves to be this little person which we are not and that's the source of all our troubles if somebody tells us you are infinite existence so that sounds foolish i was born such and such date and i shall die on some some time in the future it's it's inevitable so how can i have infinite existence um your infinite consciousness how can i have infinite consciousness i'm awake sometimes and i go to sleep at other times i have no i don't feel conscious at that time sometimes i go to sleep even when i don't want to like vedanta class or something like that you know so how can it be infinite consciousness and infinite bliss forget it there's very little bliss in my life if only you knew what my life is like 
We do not know what it is. We do not know our reality. In order to know our reality, Vedanta has a particular methodology. First of all, it shows us what we thought to be truth beyond dispute, that I am this body, that this is my life, this is my history, this is my mind, these are my memories. All this, it's there, but this is not who I am. This identifying from the body-mind complex is the first step, just the first step. That's what's going on here now. Showing that you are the witness consciousness, not the body-mind complex. So, till now, Shankaracharya, over many verses, he has been showing us through a, through a series of uh, subtle arguments, pointing it out to us, that how can I be the body? So in that series of arguments, the next verse comes, 33rd verse, showing that how can I be the body? Because the characteristics which are very evidently my characteristics are very different from the body's characteristics. How can I and the body be the same? What does he say? 33rd verse. Aham vikarahi nastu Aham vikarahi nastu Deho nityam vikaravan Deho nityam vikaravan Iti pratiyate sakshat Iti pratiyate sakshat Katham puman Katham puman What does he say here? I know myself directly to be beyond all change and the body is constantly changing. And this is a direct fact. So how can I be the body? I who am changeless and the body which is continuously changing, how can they be one and the same? What does this mean? Our first objection will be, of course I am not changeless. I am changing. I have I've changed over, you know, I have become a much wiser person. Question mark, others will put a question mark. But I feel that. I have become a wiser person, maybe a better person. Uh, I have become an older person. So I have changed. I was a kid and a teenager and a middle-aged person. I'm an old person. So I've changed. But have we? Let's look clearly. Let's look at it. Shankaracharya claims directly you can see that we do not change. It's only the body which changes. Traditionally you speak of the sixfold changes of the body. Jayate is born. Asti, after being born, they say that coming into existence, that itself is a change. Asti means now it's existing. What was not there is there now. So that, that person is there, that body is there now. Vardhate, it grows. Childhood, teenage. From a tiny little baby, it grows to this six-footer, you know, um, big and heavy and bulky and strong. Vardhate. And then you reach a peak. I was having some physical problems and they asked the doctor and he said, he smiled and he said, Swami, you have hit the forties. <laughs> Vipari namate, or the forties have hit you. <laughs> you reach a peak after which you don't develop any further, things don't get better, they just keep changing, if you're lucky. And then inevitably, apakshiyate, deterioration, physical deterioration, the body starts deteriorating aches and pains and this problem and that problem and more and more you start looking at your medical coverage and that happens. 
deterioration. Over years and years, it deteriorates. It gets worse. It ain't going to get any better, so it gets worse. And then finally, inevitably, one day, nashyati, death. So six-fold changes. But and these six-fold changes are supposed to be universal for everybody. But what Shankaracharya says here is, take a look. What is undergoing these six-fold changes? Very obviously the body. It is the body which was born. It is the body which grew, came into existence and became a little child and a teenager. Aren't you the same person who as a baby learned to walk, who, who was the teenager, who was the young person in, in school or college, and the middle-aged person with a career and a family? Aren't you the same person? Do you say, no, somebody else went to college and somebody else has got this job? No, the same person. The body is changing. You are the observer, the unchanged indweller of the body. Every change, growth, deterioration, aging, clearly applies to the body. Have you ever seen gray hairs on consciousness? No, gray hairs in the body. And it, when you go to the doctor, it's the, it's the body which gets a checkup and which gets treatment. Consciousness is just aware of it, and miserable maybe, because identified with the body. So the body changes. Anger comes in the mind, a flash of irritation. And maybe we say something out of anger. And then after some time, we regret it. Oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. Regret. See, the mind has gone from calmness to irritation to anger to regret. Changing. Who was calm earlier? You. Your mind, you are the, were the witness of the calm mind. Who became irritated? The mind. And you were, you were the same person, the same witness of that irritated mind. Who became angry and said harsh words? The mind with the help of the body. And you are the consciousness indwelling in the same body and mind. And who felt regret? Where was regret? Regret was in the mind. So the mind is continuously changing. And you know the changes of the mind. The changes, anger and regret are in the mind, not in you. And this is directly felt. It's not a theoretical argument. This is what we know. We just don't pay attention to it. And Shankaracharya is drawing our attention to a fact which it's just staring at us in the face. It's there in front of us. It's the mind which is changing. Time changes. You spend time, you know, before that, it is a little a while ago it was afternoon, now it's evening, very soon it'll be night, and very soon it'll be day again. <laughs> Times are changing, yeah. <laughs> yes. So times are changing. Place changes. You were out there driving on the, uh, the freeway, and now you're sitting here. Very soon you'll be uh, out back, moving back to your home. Place is changing. Objects are changing. You're seeing this hall now. You're seeing all these people now. After some time, you'll see other people in other places, other things back at home. Time changes, place changes, objects change. In Sanskrit, desha kala vastu. You do not change. Our states change. Waking fades into sleep and dream. 
Dream fades into deep sleep and from deep sleep we wake up again. The states are changing. In Sanskrit, Jagrat, Swapna, Sushupti. Again Jagrat. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep, again waking. You do not change. You are the unchanged observer of the changing states. So, how can you, this completely unchanging entity, the observer of all changes, you are not changing. The exchange that we experience all the time and we say we do change, you'll see all of those changes which we attribute to ourselves that I have changed over the years. When we attribute change to ourselves, you will note that each of those changes belongs either to the physical body, belongs to the world, to your relatives, to your co-workers, to your place you live, belongs to the physical body, belongs to the subtle body, mind, not to you. So he says, it's nothing to be proved. It's nothing, no, nothing very theoretical. It's no great spiritual experience to have. It is a well-known fact. If we would just look at it, if we would just look at it, it's a well-known fact. So, sakshat, pratiyate sakshat. It is evident to us that all changes are in the world, in the body and in the mind. And you are the one which notices all these changes. How can you be the body? Next. 34. Yasmat param iti shrutya Yasmat param iti shrutya Taya purusha lakshanam Taya purusha lakshanam Vinirnitam vimudhena Vinirnitam vimudhena Katham syaddeha kafpuman Katham syaddeha kafpuman all right, what's going to happen now? Till now, in several verses, Shankaracharya has brought forward a battery of arguments based on reason and experience to show that the unquestioning assumption that we have, that we are the body, it's wrong. He's questioning that. He's showing us through experience and he's pointing it out through reason that look, you cannot be the body. Now, for the next few verses, he is going to refer to the Upanishads, to the Vedas. Now he is going to get quotations from different scriptures to show that according to, the, to religion, to the scriptures which you believe in, according to those also, we cannot be the body. He will give a series of quotations for the next few verses. Somebody might think that if it is so obvious by reason and by scripture, it's so obvious that we are not the body, but why does everybody think that he or she is the body? Well, one must make an effort to get this knowledge. One must make an effort to notice this thing. The businessman makes so much effort to know the, you know, the latest position of the stocks and shares. The doctor makes so much effort to keep up with the latest uh, you know, journals and goings on in the field of medicine. A school teacher keeps up with her subject. We have to make an effort to use this knowledge, both reason and scripture. Use this and take a look at our lives. Another point here. When he quotes from the scripture, from the Upanishads or from other parts of the Vedas, it's not an appeal to faith. One must be careful here today because 
uh, we immediately shrink away. Oh, he's asking us to believe that we are not the body. He's not asking you to believe that. These are realizations, spiritual realizations of sages in ages past, and they have recorded it, and those are the Upanishads. Now, we are not supposed to just believe in that. We are supposed to listen to it carefully and take a look. Is it true? They are something you have to do, Shravana. Hear these truths which they have realized and then look at it, throw the light of that realization upon our own lives in the hope that we also realize sometime. So the aim is not to believe, the aim is to realize. Swami Vivekananda said again and again, religion is realization. Not theories, not tall talk, even the scriptures. They are meant to point out something. They are meant to give us, an, give us knowledge which we would not have otherwise. So here you have, this is from the um, Shvetashvatar Upanishad. It's beautiful. <laughs> Imagine a vast field, empty, and sky all around, cloudless, brilliant, with sunlight. And in the midst of this vastness, there is one tree which stands in the distance, standing alone, unmoving. It's a very mystical feeling you get when you look at that. And this is a, a picture drawn by the Upanishad. Vriksha ivastabdha divitishtatyenam. Like an un unmoving tree in the vastness of space. In, in a vast field, in the vastness of space, in the sky, against the vast, with the background of the sky, like a, an unmoving, unchanging tree. The self, the pure self, our real self, shines in its own glory. Tenaidam Purnam, the Upanishad says, by, by that self, everything is filled. This has been ascertained. How can you be the body? So this is a quotation from the Shetashvatar Upanishad. Uh, directly does not say that you are not the body. What it says is, if um, there is only one beyond which there is nothing, there is nothing greater or smaller than this. Param means transcending. Nothing greater or smaller. Greater or smaller depends on space. Even space shines in the consciousness that is the self. There is nothing before or after this. Because before and after depends on time. Even time shines, depends for, on consciousness for its existence. So, na param, there is nothing transcending this self, according to the Upanishad. And hence, you have to draw the conclusion. Why has this been quoted here? Because the point is to prove that the body is not the self, we are not the body. Obviously, the body is not this. The body is not something which, which cannot be transcended by anything in the universe. That's not the body. So the self, according to the Upanishads, Shvetashvatar Upanishad, definitely cannot be the body. The characteristics do not match. Just a point here, a point of interest, the Sanskrit word vimuhurena has been used. Normally, vimura, the Sanskrit word means pool. It has been ascertained by vimura. Vimura means a complete fool. But again in Sanskrit, the thing is words can be um, analyzed, can be derived in different ways. So, vigata muda bhava, that's how the uh, derivation has been done. One from whom all foolishness has departed. One who has gone beyond stupidity. By such persons this has been ascertained. So, how can 
such a self be the body. That's the argument here, based on a quotation from the Shvetashvata Upanishad. Another beautiful quotation, 35. Sarvam purusha eveti, sarvam purusha eveti, sukte purusha sangite, sukte purusha sangite, apyachyate yata shrutya, apyachyate yata shrutya, katham syaddeha kaf puman, Another quotation. This is from the famous Purusha Suktam. Purusha Suktam is a very famous Vedic uh, hymn. Um, so the Purusha Suktam is in the Rig Veda, the oldest of the Vedas. So that has ten clusters of suktas. They're called mandalas in the Rig Veda, the most ancient scripture available to humanity today. And in that you find the Purusha Sukta. Purusha means the self, the real self. Um, the hymn to the self, the real self. And in that, that Purusha Sukta, what is said? Sarvam Purusha Eva. Everything what you experience, uh, everything is the self. Now, obviously, the body is not everything. Clearly, the body is limited. This body was, is, is right here. Right here means it's limited in space. You are here means that you are not at home. Because the body cannot be everywhere at the same time. The body is limited in time. It was born on such and such date and one day it will perish. So the body is clearly limited in time and space. And here it says, Purusha, your real self is Sarvam, is everything. There is nothing in time and space which is not the Purusha. Obviously, this Purusha cannot be the uh, body. One interesting um, thing I can add here, though it's not relevant, strictly relevant, um, once, there's a very interesting uh, history of how the Upanishads came to the West, to Europe and then to the, to the West. Uh, there was a Frenchman, Anquetil Duperon, who uh, traveled to India. He was an Indologist and in search of old scriptures, old texts. And among the old texts which he collected, including some Zoroastrian texts, he was actually interested in the roots of Abrahamic faith, of Christianity and all. So he knew that even before uh, Christianity and Islam, there was Judaism. Even before Judaism, there was Zoroastrianism, the religion of what we know as the Parsis in India. And he also knew that the Parsis have settled in India. So that's why he came to India in the hope of recovering the uh, original versions of the Zendavesta and other Zoroastrian texts in order to get a better understanding of um, Abrahamic religion, Christianity and other faiths. He got some of that, but what he discovered was very momentous. He got a Persian translation of the Upanishads. And this translation had been made by none other than the elder brother of the emperor Aurangzeb, Darashuka. He was a Mughal prince who was... Uh, very scholarly, very interested in religion, and he wanted to know the religion of the Hindus. So he got the Upanishads with the commentaries of Shankaracharya translated into uh, Persian so that he could study it. And this text, it didn't do him much good. 
His younger brother had him assassinated and became the emperor. But anyway, so, but the text was still existing and Anquetil Duperon got hold of the text and he took it to Europe. And he translated it into Latin and published it in France. And the book was called Upanishad. Upanishad? Upanishad. Now, I always thought, why Upanishad? It should be Upanishad, not Kh, Sh. Um, I thought maybe it was a mistake or something. And then I discovered that I was making a mistake. Many years ago, I met this scholarly Swami in the uh, Himalayas who was chanting this Purusha Suktam, this one where the quotation is from. And he was chanting it, Purukham evedam sarvam sahasra shirsha purusha. That is the original. And all the shas he was pronouncing as kha. Sahasra shirekha purukha. Now I asked him, what are you doing? And he said, it's the purukha sukta. Why are you pronouncing the sha as kha? And he said, there's a particular branch of the Vedas of which it was preserved in, the, in his family. They were Brahmins. So they would chant, they have some particular rules for each branch of the Vedas. They have to be chanted in according to a particular set of rules. So the set of rules for their branch specified that in certain cases, the sha has to be chanted as kha. So for him, instead of chanting sahasra shirsha purusha, he has to chant it as sahasra shirekha purukha. Purukha suktam. So Upanishad becomes Upanishad. I, uh, and he's from Banaras. And I re later read that the Mughal prince Darashuka got the translation done by pandits from Banaras. Most probably from this shakha of the Vedas. So there's a very interesting correlation between the two. Anyway. So the Purusha Sukta says, everything is the Purusha. Quotation. Everything is the Purusha. If everything is the Purusha, then the body can certainly not be the Purusha, cannot be the real self. Certainly the body is not, the real, uh, not everything. So that's one more quotation. Now another quotation. 36. Asanga Purusha Prokto Asanga Purusha Prokto Brihadaranya Kepicha Brihadaranya Kepicha Ananta Malasam Slishta Ananta Malasam Slishta Katham Syadeha Kafpuman Katham Syadeha Kafpuman This quotation is from the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. It's the biggest of the Upanishads. Of the major Upanishads, the biggest one is the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. It is from the Shukla Yajurveda. And um, the famous great sentence, Mahavakya, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman, is from this Upanishad, from Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. Um, in this Upanishad, it is said, Asanga Purusha, it's a quotation. Asangoyam Purusha. This self is unattached to anything. This self is not attached to anything. In contrast, he says, Anantamala Samslishta Deha. The body 
is attached or is mixed with so many impurities, endless. What impurities? Shankaracharya says, anantam, endless impurities. But the purusha, the self, is completely unattached to anything in this universe. Think about it. Time changes, place changes. You are the same unchanged witness of changing time and place. The body ages, moves about. You are the same unchanged witness. We have this waking world. We have this dream world. We have the blankness of deep sleep. And again the waking world. None of them are attached to you. They come and go. We think, I am this body. You forget it when you go to sleep. What is our experience when we are sleeping? When we are dreaming, what is our experience? Is our experience that I am on a bed and dreaming? No. Completely forgotten the body. And our experience is a dream world. People, events, things are happening. A different time and a different place. And I've forgotten the body completely, which is lying on the bed. So you, the experiencing self, you are not attached to anything in this world. The whole world, you waking world, you forget when you go to sleep. And this body itself, so dear to us, we completely forget each time we go to sleep. Completely, we lose sight of it. You may say, oh, but the body is there, isn't it? It may be there for you, you watch the person who's sleeping. But as the person who's sleeping, what is he, he or she experiencing? At that point, he or she is experiencing something else entirely, a dream. And in deep sleep, even the dream ceases, blank, experience of darkness. So, this self is completely unattached. You see, when in, when, uh, in Vedanta they expect us to practice detachment, uh, expect us to practice detachment, anasakti, they are actually basing this teaching on a fact which already exists. They are only ex asking us to be true to the facts. What we are doing on the other hand, being attached to the world and calling it all sorts of things. I love this, I hate that. These are both love and hate are attachments. All of these are false because even if we hold on to something, somebody, some relationship, some property, some set of ideas, we think they are mine and I'm holding on to them. Every night they disappear. No guarantee they'll come back the next day. We do not recognize it. It happens all the time. We do not recognize it. We are actually unattached. The truth is about the real self right now. You'll say, oh, the self, the purusha, the pure consciousness is unattached. But I, Swami, have a big problem with attachment. You do not. You do not. I often give this very graphic example. Think of the greatest possible human attachment is a young mother with her child. A young mother with her child. The greatest possible attachment is necessary also, otherwise how can children be taken care of? But this greatest possible attachment also, when that mother goes to sleep finally at night, she forgets everything, the world, the, her most precious baby, her own body, everything is forgotten when she blissfully slips into sleep. It's a, such a natural process that we do not think twice about it. She does not go under into, into sleep kicking and screaming, oh, oh, I'm losing sight of my baby. No. Very happily. They assure me that the one thing that young mothers crave most is sleep. So 
they very happily go into sleep. Which means the greatest attachment also, we are willing to forget for some time. What a strange thing. So really speaking, asangoyam purusha, the purusha, the real self is not attached. And what about the body? The body is attached to just about everything. It is attached to the world because it needs food from the world to exist. It's made of food, annamaya. It needs air. We need to continuously breathe. Little change in air pressure, little change in temperature, little change in, uh, in the environment. We could die. I remember in India, when they would give the weather report, they would mention the maximum temperature and the minimum temperature. And I would think, why do they do that? It's not very useful. Well, it's not useful in India. It's when I came to this country, I realized it's a it can be a matter of life and death. Not in California. Not in California, but um, say in the Midwest, uh, in Chicago or somewhere. It could be a matter of life and death. Do you want to know what the minimum temperature is? Uh, is it uh, uh, 70 or is it 7? <laughs> it could be a huge difference. So... Our bodies are completely integrated with this environment. They are attached. They are part of this environment. It is not unattached. And he says impurities. Ananta mala. Inside and outside. A biologist is describing all kinds of critters living on this body. We are not aware. You would get this creepy crawly feeling if we would only know what is surviving on our skins. Millions and millions of tiny beings. I don't know if Shankaracharya was aware of germs and mites and so many little kinds of creatures survive on our, our, us. We have whole colonies of living beings are attached to our bodies. And uh, inside the body, well, forget it. Even the most beautiful body, most Hollywood body, is full of such a mess that we would, we would run away if we would see it actually uncovered, what exists within the body. There's a Buddhist meditation that when a body dies and is thrown in, if there's a rotting corpse, it's supposed to sit and meditate and watch it for a few days rotting in the open as it bloats and corrupts and stinks and finally begins to melt back into the earth. You watch, sit and watch. Pretty tough meditation. Anantamala samsleshta. This body is full of all kinds of impurities. That's why we have to keep taking baths. So, anantamalasamsleshta. Katam puman. How can the body be the self? The unattached self, pure consciousness, and this body which is connected to so many impurities, how can they be one and the same? Impossible. Well, when you say, well, when you put it like that, Swami, it seems impossible. But all the time I feel I am the body. One more quotation from Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. Tatraiva cha samakhyata Tatraiva cha samakhyata Swayam jyotirhi purushaha Swayam jyotirhi purushaha Jada paraprakashoyam Jada paraprakashoyam Katham this is from a very important uh, part of the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad called the Swayam Jyoti, the Jyoti Brahmana, talking about the effulgent conscious nature of the self. 
The self is always experienced as um, self-effulgent. What does it mean? For knowing anything in the world, we require a source of knowledge, a, an instrument of knowledge. How do, you can ask the question, how do you know? You've come to this class, and if they asked you, was the Swami there in the class? You say, yeah. And somebody can ask you, how do you know? You'll say, I saw him. I saw him. Somebody asks you, were you there in the class? You'll say, of course I was. And if somebody asks, how do you know? How do you know that you are in the class? Will you say, oh, I can see myself? The, uh, the, the teacher is asked, how, were all the students present in the class? Yes. How do you know? I did a roll call. I took a, um, you know, attendance of the students and I saw the attendance sheets and I saw everybody's name was there and they were all present. And how do you know you were there? Will the teacher say, I looked at my name and I saw I was present? No. Your own presence, your own existence does not require any proof. In Sanskrit, pramana. Pramana means source of knowledge. Did you see it or did you hear it? Did you read about it? About your own existence, about the existence of anything in this universe. It could be black holes or quarks or blue whales or uh, it could be God. Anything in this universe or beyond this universe, you need a source of knowledge. You can ask, how do you know? Except one thing. You yourself. You do not need a source of knowledge, a pramana. Because you reveal yourself spontaneously. This is called Swaprakasha. Or in the language of the Upanishad, Swayam Jyoti. Its own light. In the Katha Upanishad we find, Tameva Bhantam Manubhati Sarvam. That shining, everything else shines. You might say, good for that. That means you. You shining, everything else in the universe shines. How does everything else in the universe shine? Because you operate the pramanas, the sources of knowledge. Pratyaksha, you operate the eyes, you operate the ears, you operate the nose and the tongue, you operate the mind. Operate means by in your presence, in the presence of consciousness. All these work reveal themselves and reveal everything else in the universe. The eyes reveal forms, you can see. The, the ears reveal sound. Now you can see me, you can hear me. Why? Because your eyes are open and your ears are functioning. Behind them your mind is functioning. Hopefully. And behind the mind and the uh, sense organs, you are ever there. Because of your presence, all of these function. They are all revealed by you. Suppose you say, I need some another, another consciousness to reveal myself. Then what will happen? Then how will that consciousness reveal itself? You need another consciousness to reveal that. And for that another consciousness, it's called regressus ad infinitum. Anavastha dosha in Sanskrit. But consciousness reveals itself straight away. It does not need another consciousness to reveal itself. So, now look at the body. Does the body reveal itself? Or does it reveal itself to your consciousness? Your consciousness reveals the body, isn't it not so? My body, who is aware of the body? Uh, am I aware of the body or is the body aware of me? That would be weird and scary. The body suddenly says, hello. 
I am aware of the body. Look at this, just feel it. I am something here in this body which is aware of the body. I can see the body, feel the body. So the body depends upon your consciousness, you the consciousness, for being known. This is called Paraprakasha. In Sanskrit, the word is Chaitanya, consciousness, and Jada, non-conscious, insentient, inert. Everything apart from consciousness is Jada. Jara means insentient. Everything, follow this carefully, everything apart from consciousness depends upon consciousness for its revelation, for being known. But consciousness itself does not depend on anything for being known. Consciousness reveals itself spontaneously. This is the difference between you, the consciousness, and the body. Then how can you be the body? Body does not reveal itself spontaneously unless you are aware of it. Think about it. You don't even have to use the mind to be aware. This is a very subtle point. You don't even have to use the mind to be aware of your own existence. In fact, when you are not using the mind, if you are listening to me very carefully, you are not thinking about yourself. You are listening to me very carefully. But when you are existing all the time, your existence, of course, you don't have to think that I exist. No. When you are deeply concentrated, you can give your mind, 100% of your mind to the task. Maybe you are listening to music, maybe you are doing some work which requires concentration. At that time, when you are not even thinking about your own existence, your own existence is continuously, spontaneously, without a break, revealing itself, shining forth. If only you think about it later on, yes, I was always shining forth. So this shining forthness, if I may use this word, is what we really are. And the body is not that. The body, if you pay attention to it, you are aware of it. If you don't pay attention to it, you are not aware of it. So body cannot be the self. Descartes, the famous French mathematician, philosopher, he started by thinking that the great Descartian project, what can I, what is indubitable? Let me doubt everything. The world exists, it could be an illusion. The body exists, well, it could be an illusion. Could be a, I could be dreaming. It could be a hallucination. Mm. Today he would have said virtual reality. It could be. But what he cannot deny was, I am aware of my own thoughts. So he said, the, the famous cogito statement, cogito ergo sum, that means, I think, therefore, I am. A Vedantin would slightly modify this statement, would say, I am, therefore, I think. My, am, my I amness is always revealing itself. I often do not notice it, but it's always revealing itself. I am, therefore, I think. Kajit Orgasum. There's a joke about it. Descartes goes to a cafe in Paris. And the waitress comes and asks, Monsieur Descartes, one more cup of coffee? I'm sure in French she must have asked, one more cup of coffee? And he says, I think not. And he disappeared. Because... <laughs> I think, therefore, I am. So if I think not, then I disappear. <laughs> philosophy jokes. These are insider jokes for. <laughs> these are insider jokes for philosophy. <laughs> One more verse will do this, and then I'll open it up for question answers because it's all connected to this. One part of the Vedas is called Karmakanda. What we are doing here is Upanishads, Vedanta. This is the knowledge portion which reveals to us the reality about ourselves. But before this is what is. Conventional religion. 
Today in Hinduism, we have uh, elaborate temples and pujas. And in ancient times, even before the age of the Puranas, in the Vedic times, they had elaborate fire sacrifices. So that part which dealt with the fire sacrifices is called Karmakanda, the ritual portion. Now he's saying he's going to quote from the Karmakanda, again with the same objective. Even in the Karmakanda, in the conventional religion, you have to see that you are not the body. Let's see. Proktopi Karmakandena Proktopi Karmakandena Hyatma Dehad Vilakshanaha Hyatma Dehad Vilakshanaha Nityascha Tatphalam Bhungte Nityascha Tatphalam Bhungte Deha Padadanantaram in Karmakanda, the ritualistic portion, what has been said? Surely the, the self is different from the body. You see, in Vedanta or in Indian philosophy, we speak of a tripartite nature of the human personality. Physical body, gross body, subtle body and consciousness, the, the self. The real self, subtle body and the physical body. So we have two bodies. One is the physical body and one is the subtle body. We ask which is the subtle body? It's always evident to us. When you are thinking, when you are remembering, that's the mind, memory. When you are feeling emotions, when you are breathing, prana. That's, that's the prana. When you are hungry, that's prana. These are all part of the subtle body. At death, what happens? The physical body dies, but the subtle body goes to other realms and is reborn again. So all Indian philosophies, except the uh, materialist Charvaka, all Indian philosophies, whether they are Hindu or Buddhist or Jain or Sikh, they all accept physical body and a subtle body which goes from realm to realm and from birth to birth, body to body, and beyond that, the self. Now, the ritualistic portion of the Vedas promised that if you were a very good person in this life, then after death, you, that means the subtle body, not the pure consciousness, that's always there. But the subtle body, the jivatman, would go to heaven. And afterwards, after some time you'd be reborn and you'd get a good birth. Uh -huh. Both ways, I think B-E-R-T-H and B-I-R-T-H. So you get a good position in the next life. If you are good and you perform lots of these uh, rituals, they have so many kinds of different rituals. You earn merit, you have got lots of credit with your bank. You know, the, the cosmic bank. So God is conceived, or um, uh, God is conceived as a kind of cosmic banker who keeps credit of your uh, good deeds and bad deeds. And we get rewarded according to our good deeds, and we get uh, we suffer because of our bad deeds. Swami Vivekananda, good, good, bad, bad, and none escape the law. But he also said, but far beyond name and form is Atman never free. Pure consciousness, the self, is ever free, not touched by either good or bad. But here, in the Karmakanda, ritualistic portion, they are all about good deeds. So if you do good deeds, moral deeds, and ritualistic religious deeds, you are assured of a, of a happy post-mortem life. Promised. But God is an honest person. Suppose you say, suppose I don't, don't get it, then whom do I catch hold of? Because I'll be dead. I can't catch the priest. I can't go to, uh, uh, to the guru and catch him. 
that you taught me this thing and I did it and I don't, I, I don't, I don't like what I got after death. But then God is uh, an honest cosmic banker. Not like our Wells Fargo or something. <laughs> Big problem going on now. Anyway, so, uh, so we get what we deserve. That's the point. But what, why is Shankaracharya quoting that here? He's making one point. If we say that after death we'll go to heaven and get the results, we are doing so much of ritual, so many good deeds, and we expect some kind of reward afterwards. It means I do not die with the death, death of the body. It means I exist after the death of the body. Who else will get the reward? Because the body is gone at death. At death. Therefore, I am not the body. That's the only thing Shankaracharya is, is interested in. He says, even according to your conventional religion. Now, it's not only the Vedic ritualists. Think about it. Every religion in the world has one thing in common, in spite of their massive differences, has one thing in common. They hold on to this fact that there is some post-mortem existence. Without that, you cannot have religion. Every religion of the world. You see? They will claim that something exists after death. So post-mortem existence is the very foundation of any kind of religious faith. What Shankaracharya wants to say is that, whatever that may be, I'm interested in only one thing. If you have any kind of belief in any kind of religion, then you have to admit you are not the body. Because the body dies. It's burnt or buried. I don't know how many of you know the Parsis, the ancient Zoroastrians whom I mentioned. They have a very interesting ritual. They have the Towers of Silence, where they leave the bodies on high towers, and the birds peck, eat them up, the vultures and all. It's a, it's a very ancient custom. Nowadays I hear they're in trouble because of pollution, all the vultures are dead. So who's going to eat up the bodies? In India there's a big problem. So we are not the body even according to conventional religion. Till this point, Shankaracharya has given us a battery of arguments, reasoning from experience, and also quotations from various scriptures, and also pointing out that any kind of religious belief means that you must believe, if you are really sincere about religious belief, you must believe that you are not the body. Because the body will die. Then who is the one who goes to heaven or hell or whatever? So, this is the conclusion. Now, I am not the physical body. The reason I did not go on to the next one, the next verse will take a whole class. In the next verse, he is going to give us, I think, six or seven reasons why I am not the mind. And they are all very subtle arguments. In one verse, he's going to point out, right, I am not the physical body, but I am not the mind also. I am something different from the mind, the witness of the mind. And he's going to show that, not with quotations, not quoting scriptures. He's actually directly going to show you the mind is a thing, just like this, an object. So it will take a full class. We'll do that later. Now let's have some questions. Okay, there's a question there. Thank you. you talked about doing good and rituals you can perform and living a good life yeah. in order to secure a good birth next time around. Can an act that's rooted in self-interest that way truly be good? Yeah, uh, well, 
acts rooted in self-interest can be both good and bad, right? I want name and fame and pleasure and I, I don't care what I do to others. I'll grab what's coming to me and I'm, no matter whom I hurt on the way. That's selfish and bad. But suppose somebody says, um, I want money, I want success, and I want to be popular, but I want to be a decent human being first of all. I will not violate any norms of decency, morality, ethics, laws. I'll keep myself within those limits. That's still selfish, but it's selfish in a good way. It's not selfish in a harmful, evil way. So a person can have selfish motives, but can do it uh, without any respect to law or ethics. That is called adharma, against dharma. And one can still pursue one's goals but, and, and desires, worldly desires, but within the limits of morality and ethics, which is what most people do. Which is what most people do. Without that, society would come crashing down if everybody were to violate uh, laws. But if most people are decent, law-abiding folk. They, have, they not only obey laws, they also have a sense of morality and decency. So still that's selfish. Now, what you are talking about is, can one do good without any selfish motive at all? That's a much higher level. That's spiritual. That's one step further. And as spiritual seekers, we have to take that step to go beyond even uh, moral, selfish morality. Go beyond that to unselfishness, unselfish action. You are right. That's a higher thing. There's a question. Is there a difference between these two stands? I'm not the body, or I'm as much the body as I'm the table. Okay. I am not the body, I'm as much the body as I'm the table. Now, you, I don't know from what point of view you asked the question, but it's a very important question in Advaita Vedanta. You see, I don't know how many have noticed, Advaita is oneness. Not two-ness. Literally, if you translate Advaita, Dvaita means two. Advaita, not two. Not two-ness. So it means oneness or there's no two, no second. For a philosophy which wants to establish, to show that it's all one, it's a strange way of approaching it. Don't you think to say that I'm not the body, not the mind, not the world? Aren't you making two? Aren't you making difference? Aren't you separating yourself from the universe? What are you doing here? It's very interesting. In order to establish oneness, first one follows this negative method of discovering the real I. When I discover the real I, I shall see there is only one reality. The mind, the body, the table, and indeed everything I am. Did you see the quotation? We used it to distinguish ourselves from the body, but the quotation was Sarvam Hyayam Purusha. That, uh, that Purusha Evedam Sarvam. This, this self itself is everything. Which means the self is also the body and the mind and the table. So you have jumped ahead. So we will come to that, what you said. In fact, after very carefully distinguishing pure consciousness from body and mind, so showing that we are existence consciousness bliss apart from the body and mind entire universe, then Shankaracharya says, wrong again. He will reverse the whole thing. He will come and say, what is the point of all this analysis? 
It's not to establish two different things. It's to find out one real thing, which then is manifested as this entire world of appearance. One teacher in Vedanta in, uh, in, uh, in North India, he puts it very interestingly. He says, the, in Vedanta we are taught that you are the consciousness apart from body and mind. It's like saying, the clay is the reality, the pot is not real. The reality of the pot is clay, the reality of the wave is water. Now the clay or the water is something different from the pot or the wave. How is it different? Because when it was not a pot, it was still clay. When it is a pot, it's still clay. And one day when the pot is shattered, it will still be clay. When it was not a wave, it was water. When it's a wave, it's still water. And when the wave subsides, it's still water. So the water and wave are not one and the same because the wave can come and go, the water doesn't come and go. The pot comes and goes, the clay doesn't come and go. So the clay and the pot are not the clay is something different from the pot, wave, water is something different from the wave. This is taught, but what is not pointed out? You see, water is different from the wave. Follow this carefully. Is the wave different from water? Pot, the clay is something different from the pot, but is the pot different from the clay? Think about it. Is the pot anything other than clay? No. Is the wave anything other than water in reality, in substance? No. You see that this problem comes when Vedanta clearly says, I am consciousness, Chidananda Rupa Shivoham, I am existence, consciousness, bliss. I am not the body, not the mind. We think, we think, the body and mind is one thing, I, consciousness, am different, and we are. So the teacher in uh, North India, this uh, Swami, he was saying in Hindi, Kya ghada mitti ka dushman hai? Is the pot an enemy of the clay? Do they hate each other? No, they are actually one and the same thing. But first you must discover the clay in the pot. You must discover the water in the waves. You must discover the gold in the ornaments. Then only you can say all these ornaments are manifestations of the same gold. All these waves are manifestations of water. All this pottery is manifestations of clay. So what we are trying to do now is to discover the clay or the gold or the water, the pure consciousness within us. We are doing what is called neti neti. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, when you go into a house, you go from the door in the first floor and you climb up the stairs and you go to the roof. And you discover what the roof is made of, the bricks and the mortar and the cement and all stones, these stairs which you left behind and the ground floor and the doors, they're all made of the same thing. So what you left behind is exactly the same thing which you find at the top of the house. When you do neti neti, not this, not this, finally reach the irreducible reality, existence, consciousness, bliss. From there when you look back, you find body, mind, prana, entire universe our names and forms, the reality is you yourself. So yes, very good question. I am different, I am not the body, I am not the table, I am not the body. And I am the body and the table. Ultimately in Advaita it's going to be one and the same thing. Good question. Yes, there's a question here. So continuing that, I was having a similar question. So we talk about non-duality as well as duality. Some, there is a branch, Ramanuja, 
विशिष्ट डुअलिटी और समथिंग सो डज इट मीन दैट अवर उपनिषद और वेदास वेर नॉट क्लियर अबाउट नॉन डुअलिटी वर्सेज डुअलिटी एंड इट वॉज लेफ्ट फॉर कैन ऑफ इंटरप्रिटेशन राइट वेर डिड दीज सिस्टम्स कम फ्रॉम लेट एस बी क्लियर दीज आर सिस्टम्स दीज आर फिलोसॉफिकल सिस्टम्स दे आर कॉल्ड दर्शन Darshana means literally to see. You know, in Indian languages, darshana means to see, but also it means to know. And in India, philosophy is also called darshana. And these are systems developed on the basis of the Upanishads. The Upanishads were realizations of the rishis. So what they put down, what they expressed spontaneously, the realizations. The philosophers came later and used their intellect to systematize. Now, when you systematize something. what happens is degree of artificiality is introduced because there has to be a logical coherence buddhi has to accept it the intellect has to accept it how it happened specifically was that um, the upanishads are the basis of vedanta and they contain statements of all sorts now to deal with the various issues rising arising from the upanishads vyasa wrote the brahma sutras Brahma Sutras are cryptic statements, short aphoristic state aphorisms, which deal with the system of the Upanishads, with questions arising in the Upanishads and the possible answers to them. Now the great Acharyas, Shankara Acharya, Ramanuja Acharya, uh, Madhva Acharya, Vallabha Acharya, Nimbarka Acharya, uh, all of them they came. and they wrote commentaries on the upanishads especially they wrote commentaries on the brahma sutra in fact the way you become an acharya is to write a commentary on the brahma sutra so shankaracharya wrote his sharirakam imamsa bhashya on the brahma sutra and is now shankaracharya uh, ramanujacharya wrote the sri bhashya on the brahma sutra now they all on the basis of their commentaries they built up these magnificent philosophical edifices so advaita vedanta vishishta advaita vedanta dvaita vedanta and they are different but they are internally consistent and they engage in dialectics with each other and that it's good it led to the flowering of indian philosophy enormous richness of indian of thought in indian philosophy because of the mutual dialectics of these systems and they all claim that our truth is found in the upanishads and they demonstrate with with logic with um, rhetoric with grammar wonderful Now Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda said, all sorts of ideas are found in the Upanishads and also in Bhagavad Gita. And all of these, whether dualistic, qualified monistic, or monistic ideas, all of them are true, but for uh, different aspirants or for the same aspirant in different spiritual moods. Hanuman, when Ramachandra asked Hanuman, "What do you think of me?" and Hanuman said. Deha buddhya daso ham. As this body, Hanuman, thou art the Lord. I am thy servant. Jiva buddhya tadang shakam. As this indwelling, the subtle body, which is in this body now, this subtle body is a part of you. You are that whole. I am thy part. Atma buddhya tomeva ham. Iti me nish. Iti me nishchita amati. My conviction is, as the Atman, pure consciousness, you and I are one. which is true all are true depending on where you are standing do you take your stand in the body then god is the lord our master we are the servant we are the devotee do you take your stand in the subtle body then god is the total the cosmic mind and we are part of that 
Do you take your stand in existence consciousness, bliss, pure consciousness? You and God are one. So, wonderful answer. If you see the first part, that is dualism. The second one is qualified monism. And the third one is um, non-dualism, Advaita. So, um, all of them. And um, if you study that, the writings of Madhvacharya, Ramanujacharya, and also Shankaracharya, in each case you will find wonderful pointers to spiritual life. So, Swami Vivekananda wanted to encourage the study, not only, of course, of Advaita Vedanta, but also Vishishta Advaita and Advaita Vedanta. Uh, here's a question here. Okay, this will be the last one. This is not so much a forthright question as a tentative one and a comment, because we, you say repeatedly that there is no re religious uh, stance or thought without a belief in a continuation of existence after this life. And it exists in, as we have seen in different um, religions and religious thought. But, you know, looking at one of the oldest traditions, Judaism, uh, I really am no scholar. All I've read is derivative. But when I talk to Jewish friends, they do not have, uh, like there is in Christianity, um, the idea of a heaven or hell that you go to. Nor do they have, like with other religions that have an originator, a belief that the originator either saves you or shows you the path. So what do they believe in? Um, there is neither transmigration nor rebirth. But they claim that really this is the landscape that matters most. This is the scenario that we were born to fulfill. And what is it then? that we were born to do, which is to lead a virtuous life, yes. what we would call a dharmic life. Then you could ask, why would you do so if there's no carrot at the end of the stick or there is no threat, oaths and imprecations and uh, uh, dark, cavernous places? And they say, the reason for that is that picture that you leave behind, that tapestry, which is woven with virtue, that is what you leave behind. That is what people talk about. Your family, your peers, your society, they judge you with this thing, which was your life, uh -huh. with the sea in full. Uh -huh. It's like when a tree is standing in the forest in the Amazon, you go there and admire them, but actually you can never see the crown. And the only time you're able to gauge the height of a huge tree is in when it crashes and all the other trees around it do, and then right. you measure its length on the forest floor. Similarly, they say, that is the purpose of life. And therefore, yes. there isn't what it is that you claim is what motivates uh, all religions, this be belief in an after existence. Right. So I'd like you to comment on that. Yes, I'll just comment briefly on that. Make a distinction between what motivates, did you see the two things you used? What motivates, what should be, that's one thing. And what they claim to be fact. So it is true that they do not talk too much about heaven and hell. And they do not talk too much about the afterlife. But you will find they clearly say that we have an immortal soul. It's not that death is the end. It's not that birth was just, the, birth might have been the beginning, the creation, 
But death is not the end. Certainly not. There's some Jewish mysticism. They have fully developed idea about the, uh, the soul within each of us. And so, as a matter of fact, they will claim that there is an afterlife. So that's the point. Yes, they do not deny that death is the end. They don't say that the body is gone and that's finished. Nothing more is left after that. No, no, no. So there is an existence after, the, after death. But yes, their emphasis is on leading a good life here. Right? So the, what should be, what we should do and what is valuable, they point out that. But they also agree, if you will investigate, if you ask, is death the end of everything? Are we matter? Are we matter? Are we just um, flesh and blood, born of dust, you know, ashes to ashes? And that's, end, that's, the, that's the end, there's nothing beyond this? Of course not. Jewish mysticism, as far as I know, there's a, a fully developed theory of the human soul, which is immortal. So, as a matter of fact, they will claim that there is an immortal existence after death. So, that's the point. And I never said that motivates all religions. You see, my point was a point about fact. The argument here was, are we the body or are we not the body? And every religion will claim that there is something after death. If there is something after death, some existence after death, then we are not the body. That's the argument given here. Yeah. If, if we investigate Judaism also, you'll find that there is an existence after death also. They're not, they're, not, they're not specifying it. But they'll never ever deny that there is an existence after death. That if they deny that, it's not a religion at all. Freud, he defined religion as a belief in the transcendent. Something beyond empirical existence. If you believe in anything like that, then it's religion. Otherwise, how can Buddhism be a religion? Belief in God is not just religion. Buddhism doesn't believe in a God. But it definitely believes in um, something existing beyond the empirical uh, life. So Judaism, of course, does believe in something beyond life. Okay, thank you very much. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu